The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. Joe Rombolo's Medicare Made Easy works hard for our veterans. Did you know you may be eligible to enroll in a Medicare plan and keep your VA health and life benefits? We can offer a Medicare Advantage plan specifically designed for veterans and spouses who are entitled to VA health benefits. CHAMP VA or TRICARE for Life may offer benefits you might otherwise not receive. We can find a plan that best suits your needs. Call Joe at 314-753-0792. That's 314-753-0792. The Dog Tech Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered, causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host, Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today in studio, we have United States Marine, Dominic Master. Jim, go ahead and kick us off. Well, Dominic, welcome. we uh glad to have you here. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. The um, We've gotten to know you a little bit over the years. I guess I first met you probably two and a half, three years ago. Yeah. Now, and, and uh, I love your story. You know, you've been very candid with talking about it. But I want to go back, you know, because I, I think it's a great story when when you decided to become a Marine. Can you tell us a little bit how that happened? Yeah. Um, I My mom took me to a car show, and uh, I remember seeing a Marine in his dress blues at the time, didn't know what that was. And uh, I asked my mom, what is that? And she said, that's a United States Marine. And... Uh, I, I didn't do, I didn't apply myself a whole lot in high school. So ACTs, SATs were, uh, it's just not a, not anything I was into. So, uh, from a young age, that's all I remember wanting to be. And that traveled through to high school and, uh, it was a pretty, pretty easy decision for me to make. Um, so you're a senior in high school now and, and I think you actually signed up for an early entry Yeah, and yeah. You uh, decided you're going to go into the Marines, and you got into the Marines, and shortly thereafter, 9-11 happened, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I graduated in 2001. I had an original leave date from my junior year of September 17th, so a week before I went to boot camp. So that had to be very surreal, this going on, knowing you just joined the Marines, usually on the front of everything, and had to have been a little scary yeah, it was wild. Uh, my mom worked for the USDA at the time, and they sent all government employees home. And she came home, and uh, I had a one of my going-away parties the night before, so I was kind of sleeping that off. And uh, she came in and woke me up, and I turned the TV on and saw what was going on, and it, it, it changed things a little bit, you know? Yeah. So you're off the boot camp, and, and I, joke, I joke with Marines, and I hope they don't take it offense, but um, especially the Marines, and, and I get this from letters that, that had, they've wrote home. We have a lot of letters in our archives. And Marines especially seem to have that, oh, shit, what did I get into moment yeah. when you get into boot camp <laughs> yeah. those first couple of days. How was that for you? My first, oh, shit moment happened on the airplane 
going to, we stopped in Phoenix and then on our way to San Diego, one of the guys that I was in the delayed entry program with, he turns and I was sitting next to him on the plane and he was like, I can't do this, man. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We're in the air, you know, we're 30,000 feet on our way. What do you mean you can't do this? And he's like, I'm getting off the plane at Phoenix. We had a little layover. I'm calling my dad and having him get me a plane home. And I'm like, dude, you can't do that. You know, like you just, you've made it this far. We are on our way. Are you going to tell your dad, like, this is going to be the story? You know, this is what, you're just scared. Hang in there. We'll be fine. And he ended up in my platoon through boot camp and, and he did great. And he, before we graduated, he was like, man, thank you so much for keeping me on that plane. But so that was like the first, oh shit one. But yeah, when you, uh, when you arrive on the bus, from the airport, they have you get on this bus and then you put your head between your knees. And I think it's, just, I know it's just a mind game now, but they just kind of drive you around a little bit. And then when you pull up finally to MCRD where you're about to get out and go on the yellow footprints and all that stuff you've heard about, um, you, you still haven't seen where you're going. It's, it was at night for me, you know? And so the first re- oh shit moment on Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, one of the drill instructors got on the bus and he said something about uh, welcome or something. Now you're in my fucking world. And he said, <laughs> get off my bus. And he screamed. And I mean, I could have swore guys were jumping out the window. And I'm like, oh boy, you know. But the thing about it is they tell you exactly what's expected of you. And if you do those things, be loud, be fast, do exactly what you're told. It, it's, you know, you can take the sting out of it a little bit. But there's nothing like five of what seems to be the meanest people in the world all the way up your ass for 13 weeks, you know? So it, it, it is, it's kind of an oh shit moment for a few days, if I had to say so, yeah. But it, it was great, you know? If you're not expecting that, you, you signed the wrong piece of paper. <laughs> Definitely. You know? So, so you're in the Marines, and you were, you were a platoon leader of some kind? You, you wore a... In boot camp? In boot camp. Yeah, I was, they call it the guide of the platoon. So there's always a rank structure, even in boot camp. So it went to drill instructors and then me, and then you have squad leaders and fire team leaders just to get menial tasks done. You know, if they say, I want all your uh, weapon safety rules written down, everybody has to do them 10 times tonight. There's 87 recruits, get it done. Well, it's on me now. So if I don't get that job done, all 87 of them, sit down and watch me just get burned in the middle of the squad bay for a while. So, um, yeah, I did that for about two months in boot camp, and it was, it was, it was cool because, you know, you got to uh, prove that you could do things and fail a lot too. You know, I had, my, I had plenty of time on the parade deck and everywhere else getting smoked in front of everybody. So. Now, is that something that you, uh, they gave to you, like it disappointed you that, or did you earn that somehow by standing out amongst your peers? Or I think so, yeah. They, they watch who's who's kind of getting into the swing of things and who can hold their own and who's loud and who, you know, and, and at first it's just a guess for them. You know, the, the first guy who got the guide job was just a really big, like, jack dude. So they're like, all right, he, you know, he's going to, he at least is intimidating to look at. And, like, I was one of the smaller guys, you know, 5'9", buck 55, I think. So, but I was fast and obnoxiously loud and just, <laughs> you know, because that's the way to stay out of quote-unquote trouble. Yeah. And, and it's not that doing push-ups isn't part of the gig. You know that anyways. But, like I said, I signed up my junior year, so I took a personal fitness class where Monday, Friday, you ran, Monday, Friday, you lifted, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you ran. So like I, I was ready for most of this besides the screaming and the complete chaos, you know? So I, I prepared a little bit and some guys didn't. So when they saw physical, emotional, and like, if you could be loud, they, you know, so I think that's kind of where they saw, let's give this guy a shot. And it worked out for like two of the three months. So it was, it was pretty cool. It was a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of stress, a lot of uh, responsibility, but you know, you're doing something. So, yeah. Did that prepare you for, you know, leadership down the, down the road or? I mean, yes and no, because they, you know, they're, okay. they'll fire you at any time. <laughs> and like, you know, but yeah, of course, you know, when, when you, like I said, there was 87 of us in my platoon in boot camp. So if, if, if it's wrong, it's on me. And, and that's the way it works in the fleet too. You know, we're, you're only as fast as your slowest guy. So like if we're on a run and I'm, I'm a pretty good runner that's great, but if there's a guy behind me, I better not cross that fucking finish line. Gotcha. You know, that's not the way we do. You go back and get him. You know, so yeah, it, it 
you have to learn how to be a leader and, and how to get guys stronger. So in the middle of the night, if I knew you weren't doing great on pull-ups or push-ups or, or just not physically ready, it was my job to wake up and get my squad leaders up and, you know, you might not sleep as much, but I got to get this guy stronger, you know, because all in all, if he fails, we all fail. So that's just, you know, you got to do it. So you're you're nearing the end of boot camp, and and I think the the final event is the Crucible. Yeah, and and you have to run up the Reaper, I think it's called. Yeah, and you had an experience there, running up that hill that that really affected you. <clears throat> um, you're running up the hill, somebody's falling behind, and you're helping them with that, and you're partway carrying somebody up the hill to complete that, and you break your foot. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what, second, third, last day of? It's about a week and a half out because when you go back to Camp Pendleton, you you get ready to graduate and all that stuff. But, yeah, um, it's funny about the Crucible. It's like any other story, and it's a lot like boot camp. You hear all these horror stories about it, and you make it up so much in your head. My older brother, and you get all these stories from the other recruits, and you're like, shit, this is going to be terrible. After you get out of boot camp, I'll go back to this story, but after you get out of boot camp, the Reaper is like a small hill that we PT on for fun, you know? So it's looking back at the time it was, you're looking up this mountain and you're like, oh my, I've never been up something. So yeah, it's a, it's a whole battalion hike. And the deal is, well, and okay, I'll go one more time. I had gotten fired from my guide position, but they still knew who I was and, and that I could keep up. So uh, my brother Noriega and I, they put us at the back of the whole platoon. And my senior said, if anyone falls behind you, it's fucking over. So Noriega and I looked at each other like, well, now this is our job. Because they knew we were going to be okay. We're, we were good at running and, and you know it wasn't going to be a physical problem for us. But still two and a half months in, there were some guys that had not caught up. So here comes this guy, and he had had problems, and I tried to help him and, and do my best, you know, to help this guy, and here he comes falling back. And the, the one drill instructor that was back there with us, he uh, he was like, uh-oh, here comes your first casualty. You know, he's just totally messing with us. And I'm like, Noriega, we can't let this happen. So he comes falling to the very back of the platoon. Noriega's like, I'm going to grab his pack. You grab him. So Noriega grabs his pack, and the whole time I'm like, you, you know, like, you know how important this is for all of us to get up here. And look good doing it, you know, because Battalion Sergeant Major, everybody's out there watching and they're going to go, oh, Fox Company. It's not a good look when you have that kind of, sorry, but weakness all this way into boot camp. So Noriega grabs his pack and he's now he's falling down and everybody's so dramatic. It's like, it's, it's not that big of a deal. You're in the Marine, you know. So um, I kind of pick him up and I had to really just drag him up this hill. I didn't know it at the time, but when you're done with the Reaper, you go up to the top, get your Eagle Globe and Anchor, you're now, I guess, your drill instructors won't tell you this, but you are technically a United States Marine at this point when you get handed your Eagle Globe and Anchor. Best day of your life. Things are now going to be okay, you think, you know. So uh, you go back to the squad bay, and they give you a medical, just a check over. And I remember taking my boot off and it was tough to get my foot out of the boot now i couldn't feel this remember adrenaline just crazy everything's just nuts we did it we're marine you know this is what we've been here for so i remember like trying to get my foot out of the boot and i'm like what is going on here you know i didn't have that problem i finally get my foot out of the boot it's double in size and i'm like okay how can i hide this because i know what happens if you don't if you get injured they can send you back to um it's like a recovery platoon. Like, mind you, we've already got plane tickets paid for after boot camp. I'm going home. You know, you're not, I'm not staying. So he comes by, the one drill instructor comes by, and he was doing his check, and he goes, whoa, and he sends me off to medical. And I'm like, I, immediately, I was just like, everything that I've just done here is gone now because of so-and-so, you know, because you couldn't hack it, because you didn't get ready, because da 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 But again, it's my responsibility, right? So... I get to medical and, and obviously the Navy takes care of our medical stuff. And I remember these guys and they're like laughing, like, ah, he's broke, you know, and I've never been so ready to like lose my composure in my life, you know? So they put me in like a boot and on crutches, you know, now I get back to the squad bay, the rest of the platoon's gone eating or whatever they were doing. My senior drill instructor, a man that I revere amongst all the men I've ever met in my life, you know, 
I go, I'm come walking in. You're supposed to announce yourself. And there's a whole row of things you need to do when you, you don't just walk around. That's not the way this works. You have to request permission to speak. Not only, you know, so I come walking in. I did nothing I was supposed to be doing. He's like, hey, what? Get over here, you know. And I just, he's like, what's going on with you? And I said, my foot's broke. He said, my, because you're supposed to this recruit, you know. And I'm just like, yeah, I never, um, my composure was down. My respect was down. I was, I was bummed, you know. And he was like, so what's the problem? And I said, well, I'm not going to graduate. And he's like, why would you not graduate? And I'm like, well, my foot's broken. I'm not going to, like, don't worry about it. Go do, you know. So it was like this weight, you know. I'm like, okay, I'll be able to make it. Because I think he knew I did what I had to do for another recruit, you know. And I never gave him any problems, really. So I was always doing what I was supposed to. So I, it ended up being all right. But, yeah, man, when I found out my foot was broken, it was just – it was a bummer deal. So you you graduated. You, then you go to advanced next. Where, yeah. Where, where did you go there? So then you, then you go up to Camp Pendleton for School of Infantry. If you're non-infantry, you go to a different school um, – but yeah, it's another three months of infantry training, land navigation, more weapons, uh, stuff like that. So you go up there and you do you do another length of boot camp basically. But you know you you're like off at night and you can talk normally and <laughs> and go out uh, to Oceanside and get your hair cut on the weekends and stuff. So it's a lot less. You know the boot camp thing's over once it's over. So yeah. I hadn't heard uh, the phrase until a little while back. They used to call the Pendleton the Hollywood Marines. Yeah, yeah. And what did they call the Camp Lejeune guys? Oh, I don't know. I don't want to be too mean, but <laughs> but yeah, we we have our own little internal beef. You know, they think we've got it easy, and they've got sand fleas to deal with, so they make a big fucking deal out of it. But they're a bunch of crybabies. <laughs> just kidding, guys. Just kidding. But you don't want to make a big deal out of it. <laughs> no, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. But I'm going to talk shit. <laughs> So anyway, you, you know, nine eleven has happened, and, and you guys had to have a feel. You're in your advanced training now. You had to have an instinct that you're probably going to go to the sandbox sooner oh. or later. Oh yeah. Well, the senior drill instructor every Sunday would he had a newspaper and whatever the topic of which was, of course was what was going on. You know, he would well, you boys better. Tell your girlfriends goodbye, you know, right where you're going. And all you grunts, you know, right where you're going. The rest of you might end up there at some point, but you guys, you know, so we had a pretty good idea it was going down either way. And then, yeah, the news and calling home and what the civilians got to hear was terrifying and everything else. So it didn't, didn't help anything, but yeah, so we, we had a pretty good idea. So take us, take us to, to your move over to the uh, desert. How did, how did that go? When did you guys go, and and how did it how did it go? We were earlier in two thousand three, so we actually were going on our Westpac, which in a normal situation, non combat, you get on the boat and go to Hawaii, and you you know you get to make a couple stops at some Liberty ports, and and it, it's kind of like a a normal standard exercise. Well, we did get to make a couple stops, but then um, of course they had a good idea what was going to happen, so we got flown into Kuwait, um, and there was just nothing there. there it, it was us. We went to a place called Camp Bullrush, and I've tried to find that, and I think it got renamed, which is why I can't find it. But when we got there, there were engineers on backhoes still building berms, right? So there were no – I hear now, like, Burger Kings and stuff, and, I mean, that, that drives me crazy because I would have loved to have Burger King at some point, but – um, so yeah, we, we were just in this desert getting acclimated and, uh, at some point a little bit later in the month, we were getting some Intel and we were able to kind of have an idea of what we were doing. So it was funny to try to work on combat in an urbanized environment and, and, all you have are like some cones on the desert floor to like, you know, try to like breach doors and stuff. So there's luckily all the training had already happened that we were going to get, you know, and we had really some pretty good training facilities and we had pretty good ideas when we were back home. So, uh, we were able to work on that a lot, but yeah, when we were over there, we were just kind of waiting on orders. You know, it, it, there wasn't a whole lot you can do. We were just getting used to the weather and, how hot it was and, and, you know, just kind of trying to get worked up, but there's not a lot you can do except stay in shape, you know, stay in shape and drink water. 
It's the military way. Hurry up and wait, right? That's it. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. The, uh, the whole environment over there, I think you made a comment one time to me that if they ever invaded Camp Pendleton, you know, we could kick their ass. We got the home field advantage. Yeah. But it's, it is a little bit different kind of warfare over there, and, and uh, you probably didn't know what quite to expect. Very much. Very much, yeah. Camp Pendleton, um, without going into too much detail, we have – and this was 20 years ago, everybody listening. So I know things are better now and more advanced, but, um, we did have a really good urban environment that we could train on. It was a small town, you know, so that part was pretty cool. So we got to learn a lot about breaching doors, clearing windows, um, the search and, 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 you know, we got to learn a lot about urbanized warfare. So that was cool. But, it's Murphy's law, you know, if it's, it, you always have a plan and we all, we had aerial photography and, and, you know, our force recon and scout sniper guys are out there doing their thing and getting us Intel. But when you go into a building or a home, it's always going to be a little bit different. Now, after a few of them, you kind of get the vibe, but the people are going to be different. The smell, the, the door, the locks, the dogs, the, everything is going to change on the fly every so many minutes, you know? So you like, if you're a baseball player, you can practice batting for 20 years and you're going to see a couple pitches, you know, but this thing was just totally, totally different. There was, there's only so much preparation you can do. And then as grunts do, we figure it out when we get there type of thing, you know? So you're, you're really, you're not sure what you're going to see. You, you, not many of the guys in your unit had combat experience. No. You were, for the most part, very new. Younger, yeah. And uh, the night before, I mean, you're you're 19 about now? I was 20, yeah. You were 20? Yeah. And you know you're going in the next day. Yeah. They make you wear a chemical weapon suit, yeah. which, and yeah. it's in the desert. You know, that had to have been just horrible, the anticipation and, and not knowing what you're going to see. Yeah, yeah. So... When we did finally get orders, we moved up to 12 miles from the border. At night, it does cool down, but you're still in that mop suit. And, and to when civilians ask me, like, what are those things you're wearing? It's kind of like having Carhartt coveralls on. It's filled with a charcoal and, and not to go into too much detail, but it helps in case of a chemical attack, which we were threatened with numerous numerous times right so we had to drill for that too you always have your gas mask with you it's it's close as your rifle it never goes away you know so um when when the air campaign started because it's funny being 12 miles from the border of you don't know what yeah i know that it's this is kuwait and that's iraq but you're in a desert nothing everything looks the same but being 12 miles from the border of a war they're like, well, you got Firewatch. I'm like, look, I'll just do Firewatch all night. I'm going to be up either way. Nobody's sleeping, you know, and a couple guys could sleep no matter what, and they piss me off every day. But, um, yeah, so there was no sleeping. And when they started the air assault, I mean, you could feel the ground shake, you know. So it was, uh, of course, scary. I, I wouldn't be the guy that's like, it's not that bad. It's, it's terrifying. But there's a lot of excitement, too, you know, a lot of excitement. Were those mop suits on 24-7 or just when sirens went off? Or At first, when we first invaded, first crossed the border, they that was that was everyday gear. And it's funny because you have on, like, your skivvy shorts, just your running shorts and a T-shirt underneath it, you know? So you look completely ridiculous if you take that thing off. But, yeah, just because the time it would take you and, and also try to keep in mind that if a missile with chemical agents was coming – there might not be a siren. It might just go, you know, of course we might have some kind of indicator, but it's a lot to do in a very short period of time. So yeah, for a while it just stayed on. And then if we did get sirens or if we did have any indicator gas mask and hopefully you don't have a chew in because now you got your gas mask on and it might be on for a while. So there's no spitting unless you want to spit inside, you know, and it was just a drag, but you don't want those chemical agents, you know. We had to prepare for that. Got a lot of uh, anthrax and polio and all that stuff on the ship. So, 
you know, you think you're prepared for it, but that, again, that you can only be so prepared for something like that. So you're 20 years old. You're all ready to go. You know you're going the next day. Um, never been in combat. That that had been a little scary. And, you know, I think you've made the comment. I, the public, on the news, they talked about the Republican Guard being this elite army. Yeah. So that just kind of threw a little bit more <laughs> stress, uh, yeah. you know, attention there. And you're let go. And, and uh, I think you used the term when you told me before, the devil dogs unleashed. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh Certainly an aggressive, you know, style of attack and everything is, is something that you guys use. But oh, yeah. so you're in, you're heading into the country and tell us about those first few minutes, first few hours. And when you get it, went in, well, the story we got from our translators that we asked nicely to work for us was that Saddam and the Republican army went through to all the homes in the Southern Iraqi cities and said, military age men, you either come with us or everybody goes. So, I mean, I don't know what kind of man you would be to go, screw that, you know, <laughs> mom and sister and grandpa, and they all live together, you know. There's 15 people in a home, so you got to get up and go. So when we crossed and finally got out of our, I was in a, I was attached to an AAV unit, uh, an amphibious assault vehicle. Um, so when we got out of those, they had holes dug in. I mean, there were, there was a ton, there were hundreds of them. A lot of them, as you, because we had to clear every hole, like nothing went uncleared, you know, because it's our job to clear so everybody behind us knows that there's hopefully not going to be a threat there. So we had to clear everyone and everything. A lot of them, they they didn't want to be there anyway, and then especially when they hear us screaming and yelling and all the fifty cows going off and Mark nineteen, they they wanted nothing to do. They were they were there against their will anyway. So a lot of them would surrender, and then you'd have some that would throw pop shots and then surrender. And it's like, well, that's not how this thing works. And then some that wanted to be there and uh, thought that was their job, and okay, good job. But so, yeah, I, there were a lot of them that, that wanted nothing to do with fighting us, you know, at all. So how do you, how do you gauge, you know, that uh, thought process with still keeping your guard up as, as you know, these guys don't want to be there, but then you got people that are coming at you, these guys that uh, actually want to take pop shots at you. How do you how do you stay alert for the guys that really do want to get you? Where your eyes go, your muzzle follows. And if you have a weapon, you're enemy. If you don't, we can we can try to get through this. And I don't have a problem with you if you're not enemy, you know. But if you're shooting at my guys, well, that's a problem. So, yeah, I mean – Hostile force obviously is a big one, but um, I mean, if they if they just didn't have a weapon, we're we're also trained to use uh, discretion, you know. So um, if you don't have a weapon, you can go. We've got a place for you to hang out, and we'll we'll hopefully get you back home and all that stuff. So yeah, we we took a lot of prisoners the first day, four hundred and seventy eight, I think it was. And you're a twenty year old kid walking 400 people down a highway and like your buddies, you're in a staggered column. So your butt, you can see your buddies like a hundred yards and you want to talk to them. Like, what the hell are we, you know, what is, what are we even doing here? These are grown men. But uh, like I said, a lot of them were, they would rather come with us, you know, because they were probably going to take care of you as, as America tends to do with non-combatants, you know? So um, a lot of them, we just wanted to go home and they had their like sons with them and stuff, you know? So you gotta, you gotta try to get into their mindset without letting your guard down. Cause that can cause problems too. When you start trusting someone that, that, you know, hasn't really earned your trust quite yet. You gotta be careful. And you're dealing with women, children, older people. There weren't a lot of women those first couple of days out in the desert, okay. they, like I said, mostly military age men. Okay. And then you'd have some younger kids that maybe they didn't have a mom. So the dad was all they had and they'd come with them and it's still a child. I'm a Marine and this is war and you're an Iraqi, but that's a child, you know? So you, you have to, you have to think about, you have to slow down and kind of think about those things too, you know, because yes, I do believe, and we say we're the finest fighting force in the world. And I, I do believe that I've seen it happen. And, and, to all the other branches, you guys are great too. I'm not one of those guys. I I really am not. But we also, 
it is about people too. You know, we're, we don't, we don't just slaughter everyone and that's just not part of our job, you know, unless that's your intention. And then we can, we can go down that Avenue too. Just matching force with force then. Well, yeah. 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 I mean, we come a little harder than most, but (laughs) the, uh, it had to have been, if you think about the, the dynamics, you just kind of explained in a way. So you saw a whole lot of surrenders early on. It almost possibly created a little bit of false sense of security in a way because later on some of the hostiles looked a whole lot probably like those that were surrendering. Yeah. And it's hard to tell friend or foe there. And, of course, we heard stories about, you know, backpacks, people walking into camp and be weary of that, leery of that. So that had to have been something that caused a little bit more stress when you can't define who the enemy is. Yeah, absolutely. And we had that conversation on a day-to-day basis. These are not our friends. We're, they might not be fighting us right now, but don't anyone get this mixed up. These are not our friends. We're, we can treat them with decency and humanity, but they're not our friends. So um, if you keep that always, you know, they can turn on you. They don't like us. We're infidels. They either want to, um, you know, recruit us into their religion and their way of life or kill us. The enemy, not the civilians so much, but that, that's how they feel about us. So to let your guard down is a big, big mistake. And there were some guys who, you know, they would kind of offer us, like, food and stuff sometimes. And the guy's like, you should try this pita bread. I'm not fucking eating anything from here, you know. And they're like, dude, they're regular people. I'm like, you don't know that, you know. And I don't have to be mean to them to not want to take gifts. I'm, I'm just not doing that. And, and we would protect your home, too. You know, we when, when people needed our help, we would help them. But in the beginning, this isn't a humanitarian effort yet. You know, good point. Good point. This is this is that's not what we're here right now. It ended up being that, but at first, the shock and awe is exactly that. You know, so you have to treat it as such, and, and letting your guard down is a big mistake. You know, you mentioned uh, the, the first days of war and and, and being young and stuff like that, and uh, no one's ever prepared to, uh, you know, have a friend that becomes a casualty. You know, I know that that's pretty painful, and um, it's hard to mourn in the in the heat of battle. How how did that uh, look like for you? It it happened really quick. Uh, the first day, the first few hours, um, we all have. Uh, it's not called a kill number; it's called something else. But you have uh, whatever your drug allergies are, your blood type, and then this number, right? So. Um, not that we knew each other's numbers by heart or anything, because that's a little crazy. We got enough going on. But we heard this number come up, and it got around that uh, that's Gutierrez, you know. And, uh, yeah, they, they flew him out. And while we're all kind of looking at each other and trying to figure out what happened and what what is this real type of a thing, you know, the helicopter leaves, and and it's like we're, we're, we still have to go. So, yeah, they're, you know – you don't sit around and, and have a meal and discuss it and, and, you know, you have to keep moving. And so definitely not forgotten uh, by any means. But there's still this thing in front of us that's coming at us and doesn't want us to be here and, and um, this job that we have to do. So when we would get a chance, you know, what the fuck, man, what just happened? You know, we would kind of talk about it, but then – like you got to get back to work. And so it, it is tough because here, you know, you lose a friend or a, a family member or whatever. It's like, you know, there's a wake and then there's a funeral and we all get together and, and go through all these fun stories. And it's a very sped up process of doing that in the middle of hell. And, and you just, you have to, you have to keep going and everyone's sorry that you have to keep going. It's not that any of us are like, well, I'd rather be here and keep doing this than go mourn our brother, but we don't have that choice. The choice is gone, so it makes it makes what you have to do just a little bit easier, I guess, because there is no choice. We were we were talking before we went on the air, talking about it, um, and there is no time to mourn. You just got to keep moving along, or you become another casualty. Yeah, I'm sure. But 
there is coping mechanisms, and one of the things that I hear about, and anytime I'm with at least two Marines or more, you hear you hear some of this. But there's a, a dark humor that you guys kind of use as a release. Some of the sometimes. worst. Yeah. And and can you talk about that a little bit? Our job. One example, if it starts to rain for some reason in Southern California, it's like, get your shit, we're leaving. And we're like, I thought we had the day off. They're like, no, it's raining. So the the whole idea is to put you in the worst situations, whether, um, you know, continuous movement, stuff like that. It's to put you in the worst situations so that when something does happen, it's no longer shocking, right? When you hike 30 miles and then someone says, hey, we got to go – you know, six clicks that way. It's like a big deal. I do that with my fucking shoes off. You know, it's not even that big of a deal. So they put you in the, as hard of conditions as we can drum up and to get you just numb, just, you have to, like David Goggins says, a callus on your brain to pain and fear. It just, you, you work at it. So when you're out going through all these things, again, you have choices, but the choice is either, be miserable and piss and moan about it, which is not going to change anything. Check it out. Staff Sergeant gives a shit how cold or hot or wet or hungry or tired or whatever we are. He does not care. Neither does battalion commander. No one gives a shit. You're a Marine. This is what we do. So while you're in the middle of doing all these activities that are really hard and it's hot and it's shitty conditions, the one thing that I think we all have in common is that terribly dark and just evil sense of humor and and it's so wrong we've talked about it before my wife has heard me on the phone with some of my guys and she's like babe you cannot say those things and i'm like oh yes i can this is the place that i there is no politically correct when it comes to a platoon or fire team or battalion or marine you say the worst stuff you can think of and it gets a laugh almost every time and and it's great because that's all you have you look over at that guy and he is miserable if not more than you are and so you're like you know I'm not going to say these things on the air, but it, you, you have to do it because then it breaks the thing. And it's like, fuck it. At least we're in it together laughing. We, you can laugh or cry. We don't cry that often. So just laugh it up, man. And so, I mean, you would find what really gets that guy's goat and just tug on it. And, and it's great. It's great. It's a way to pass the time. So you're about, you know, about a month in uh, now and uh, you're working security. And uh, there's a lot more interaction with the Iraqis and likely stress. How how did you feel about being close to civilians and kids? Was that more stressful than combat itself? I didn't like it at all. I hated that part of it. A, the downtime, meaning, and <clears throat> when I say, excuse me, when I say security, it's like we would go through, um, so you would have this checkpoint for a few hours or whatever than I would or, you know, our company or platoon or whatever would. So we're like checking cars and it's just really boring, you know, and no, I don't want to deal. I, at that time I, I did not want to deal with civilians at all. Not that I wouldn't and not that I would be harmful to them. I just, that's, I don't, I didn't like that part of the job so much. Some of my guys loved it and they could kind of interact and we knew a little bit of the language enough to kind of get you in trouble, I guess. But, um, no, I, and the kids and stuff, they, I've got some photos and, and they're all just surrounding us as we're patrolling down the street. And we had gotten word that the kids, you know, because we have grenades and we have stuff all over us. And we had gotten word that it's not so far-fetched that this kid's dad or someone wouldn't have maybe taught them how to pull a pin on a grenade. So, you know, I thought about it like feeding a stray cat. Then they keep coming at you. So I had to kind of be a little aggressive at first and then just keep them away from me. You know, I, I don't want to be mean, but I, I'm also not, I'm not going to die because some kid grabs it because there's like this photo I have, there's 30, 40 kids around each one of the guys. And it's like, get them away from you. And we got enough problems with all these windows and avenues of approach and potential, you know, sniper shots and stuff. Like I'm not, I am not paying attention to these kids wanting my food. You know, it's like, so get away from me. So my platoon commander was finally like, Hey man, you got to settle down a little bit. And I'm like, I, I I can't really follow that order, sir. And he's like, well, then paint your face or something so they know that you're the guy. So I remember I put, like, two black stripes on my face. And then I, so the one photo my buddy had, I'm all by myself like I was supposed to be. And everybody else has got all these kids around <laughs> him. Well, how'd you do that? I'm like, well, you just have to. I don't I, 
hard time trusting over there. That's not my job, you know. I know it sounds aggressive, but well, I, I can understand where you're coming from. I think is is that you you got forty people around you you don't know, right? And you you don't want to take any chances. I I can hear I can hear what you're saying there. Well, and I'm not in O'Fallon. I'm in our, I'm in southern Iraq. Right. This isn't a place that we came to hang out. We're like. I'll, if I want to go hang out with kids, I'll go home. I got nieces and nephews, you know? I, this isn't the place for that. Well, Dominic, I, I, a lot of people that uh, think about war that aren't military veterans look at it from the perspective of, like, movies, you know, what they see in movies, you know? And, and in, in the real world, you're not in combat 24-7. There's some downtime. Can you talk about the difference between, you know, the combat and the downtime and, and what you guys would do on your downtime? Um, over there, downtime was like sleep, try to sleep. Right. And, and then, so you would, you would dig your fighting positions and get in a defense a little bit. If there was any quote unquote downtime and there was, don't get me wrong, but, um, sometimes you'd get mortar fire. Well, one mortar round is enough to fill in your holes and move out and go somewhere else. So downtime was kind of to sometimes at night. Um, I don't think that they had, or that. I don't think where I was, they had a lot of the night vision technology. So it seemed like at downtime, like I remember we had, um, we all had radios on us, you know? So like the one guy, I don't somehow had like a iPod or something. I don't even know what was out back then, but so they would do like a little radio show, you know, just something to kind of keep you entertained or something, you know, just to take your mind off of a little bit. But I know it was a lot about sleep you know, and, and trying to eat some food and keep water somehow cold. And you were know. you finally able to sleep at any time? You said you, you didn't sleep for a long time. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you get to the point where you're so physically and mentally exhausted that, you know, all right, man, I'm going to try for a little while. And then, and then, and then there's that trust of your brothers that are on firewatch, you know, and this goes into a lot of training and stuff in camp Pendleton. It's, you say to yourself, like, dude, no one's attacking us here. It's just, it just, it could happen, I guess, but it's not going to. So, but that's where you iron out the problems like guys falling asleep on Firewatch. Mm. You just don't do that. And there's a reason for it. Because when we got over there, falling asleep on Firewatch, like you, I have to trust with everything, you know, because if you fall asleep, they just walk up. So, um, sleep a lot. I think you, I think we might have tried to write letters and stuff, but what's the point? There was no mail for a while. Um, a couple of days without water resupply at one point. There was just, we were just by ourselves for a while, which is looking back, it's kind of cool, you know? But yeah, so really just trying to catch up on sleep and, you know, get some kind of normal conversation going and chill out a little bit. I, we've had this conversation before. I, uh, I think the first time I met you, I was in awe that the the world's greatest army, the richest country, and we send you guys over there and you go days without water and and some of the very basic needs. Mm -hmm. And you talk about being a grunt mm -hmm. and with a sense of pride. Oh, yeah. And, and then you went on to say there's grunt and there's pogs. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, a pogue is a personnel other than a grunt. <laughs> so it's everyone else, basically. <clears throat> Again, I love all branches. Uh, big disclaimer here. Uh, the Pogues, someone has to do that job, and we love them. It's, it's, but it is, it's an internal thing that we're going to give you shit about. If you're a mail clerk and I'm a grunt, it's sorry, but we don't do the same job. But it's all in fun, you know. So, yeah, uh, grunts have it tough, and we, it becomes a badge of honor to have it that way. And, you know, when you have canteens from Vietnam – and and you see the army they've got like these oakley boots and these nice sunglasses and all this cool stuff it looks great but then there's that sense of like i can do it with less you know so i think i honestly it's a lack of options it's not that we wouldn't rather have all this cool gear and i'm sure the gear now is great again this is 20 years ago i'm sure they've got great stuff now but the marine corps always we've always been the smallest and we've always gotten the hand me downs and we've always made it work so we don't use something and then if it's kind of ripped or a little tattered, throw it away. We fix it and bring it back because that's probably all we're going to get. So there's a sense of pride in that too, for sure. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, Pogues, you know, they, they, they get communications going so we can call for support. And it, it's, it's really obviously important it, it, if it was just grunts, you know, things. But, yeah, the, the story I was told, the one I guess I choose to believe the most, is um, Vietnam, you would show up to the airport, qualify on the rifle uh, with your rifle at the airport on the side of the runway in the grass. And so the, the term came as an acronym for ground recruit, usually not trained. That's the one I like. I'm sure there's a ton of different, uh, you know, stories about it, but that's the one I kind of like the most because it's like we at least went through boot camp and got some training. Those guys got straight on a plane and their life expectancy in a hot LZ in Vietnam, I don't know, 45 seconds or something insane. So I can't even imagine that type of, like, that's a completely different war than anything I know anything about because we were very, we were pretty prepared, you know, so – but yeah, it's a it's a it's a badge of honor for sure. So you had been in about two years, and you had a a major event happen. You went home. You were happened to be home for Christmas, mm-hmm. and with your mom. And your mom had a major stroke. Yeah. And you tell us you probably didn't know it right at that very moment how it was going to change your life, but that was a big thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we had just gotten home from our deployment and got some leave time and. We already had orders to go back. Like We knew, okay, you guys are going to be going back uh, January 7th or whatever it was, and we just so happened to get home for the Christmas holiday and New Year and stuff like that, so it just worked out great. Um, but, we, yeah, we had orders to go back, and it was like, okay, whatever it was in January, we show back up to Camp Pendleton, and then a month later we're shipped off again. Um, yeah, she had a – my mom, my sister was gone. My dad was in prison at the time, um, and – uh she came out and I was on the couch and I don't know why I was at home because when I came home, I was never actually at home. Everybody was partying and stuff, you know? And, uh, but for some reason it was January 30th. So I guess what I think I remember is saving up for new year's Eve. Like that was going to be the big blowout, you know? So I'm like, Oh, let's sleep this one off and then go out tomorrow night. Um, and she came out from her room and I said something to her and we had a conversation, but I thought she was, just talking in her sleep and she said something about the toys all over the floor and I said what are you talking about and so she sat down next to me on the couch and I said hey are you thirsty or something you want a glass of water and she kind of shook her head so I went in and got her a glass of water now my mom's single mom bartender I know that she's right-handed right so when I hand her the glass of water she reached up with her left hand and I'm like okay stop I was like I know you and you've never grabbed for anything with your left hand first. What's going on? And she looked up at me and just had this look in her eyes. And I'm like, holy shit, you know. So a friend of mine at the time, her mom was a registered nurse. And just it dawned on me to call her. I'm like, hey, what's going on? And my mom and I kind of told her what was up. And she gave me a couple little tests, like have her squeeze your fingers with both of her hands. And I'm like, yeah, the left one's got nothing. She's like, get her to the hospital. So, yeah, I rushed her to the hospital at 42 years old. She had a. Major, major stroke, yeah. So um, the first thing you do when something like that happens and you're at home is call command and let them know, hey, listen, this is what's going on. So they said, all right, for now, you're going to check in with the reserve unit at the airport, and that's who you're going to be attached to for now. And so I thought that was like, all right, I'll call them or go up there or whatever they need me to do, and then I'll be flying out like normal. Well, my mom was in ICU for about two months, not doing good, didn't really think she was going to make it for a while. And uh, so I was attached to that reserve unit up there, and it and it passed the point in time when 2nd Battalion 1st Marines left. So as time went on, the reserve unit, they kind of, it wasn't an ultimatum. I mean, they I still had a job, but it just wasn't a grunt. It wasn't an infantry job. So the commanding officer up there was like, well, we're getting ready to go. You can go back with us. And I'm like, great, what do you, like, what do you got? any infantry? What do you, what do you guys do? And they're like, no, we're a reserve unit. And I said, okay, so what are you going to be doing? Well, you know, we we build chow halls and, and kind of take care of, of restrooms and shit like that. And I, again, pogues are great. We need them. We need reservists. Reservists are great. It has to happen. And I love those people. They're, they're great and they do a great job and they're still Marines and they're still army and they're still Navy. That's just not what I signed up for. When I went in that recruiter's office my junior year, I was like, I was the dude that pointed to the 
the cool looking recon guy on the poster on the wall, you know? So I was an easy enlistment. He was like, cool sign here. Anybody idiot can be a grunt, you know? Um, so I weighed out my options and I'm, I'm like, I, I just, I can't see that. So my mom wakes up finally in ICU and I happen to be there that day. And she's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm here for you. She's like, you need to go. Cause again, she knew when I was a little boy at that car show, like this is all I ever wanted. And uh, so once they gave me that ultimatum, it was pretty easy to make my decision. I so they I got out with a humanitarian discharge. The um, and that led to another tough incident that you experienced. Mm-hmm. You're not with your unit. First, yeah. you're losing your brothers. Yeah, that you'd been so close to, which yeah. is traumatic for anybody in the military that you formed that bond. Sure, but your unit went into Fallujah. Yeah. And you were a door kicker. Yeah. There's a lot of doors that kick in Fallujah. A lot of them. And it was tough. Yeah. And you, I think your squad got hit a couple of times yeah. pretty bad. Yeah. At the time, Fallujah was the most dangerous place in the world. That was 2004. So, yeah, um, when they finally came back, and I, I still had one of the guy's numbers, luckily, because cell phones were early and stuff, so everybody, we didn't have cell phones over there with us at the time. So I still had, and, and yeah. I, I got the word of, of what happened to my fire team and platoon and all of our guys. And it was, uh, it was rough. It was terrible. Yeah. You actually, I think one of the guys, one of the point guys, yeah, you actually lost him. You, you felt like you would have been there. Maybe it would have gone differently. No, no, not at all. Because the story, so I was a point man too. And the story that I got from my brothers, which is, I know it's true um, the way that the ambush went, I would have been directly involved and not made it home. So there's that weird thing about I didn't get to finish what I started, and then there's that other thing about I'm alive now, so what do you do with it, you know? But, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of us probably feel like we're on borrowed time in some way, shape, or form anyway, you know? When a guy pops up out of a hole and fires that RPG at me and Fullerton – and it hits the dirt and just kind of spins out like a firework that didn't go off. And he looks at me and I look at him. I'm like, is that fucking thing going to explode? And we just slowly start walking backwards. Like at that moment, I'm on borrowed time. That, that was it. That thing's got a 30-meter kill radius. We were 10 away. I mean, it was over. So, yeah, it, it's, it's really strange. I, I still, I've worked on how to figure that out, but... Forever, it was hard to even talk to those guys because I was supposed to be there. No, I don't think I could have done a better job because I know the guy that was the point man. I know he came up and he went through the same kind of stuff that my senior Marines taught me. So I know he was taught well. I don't think there was a chance one way or another. I, the, from the way that the, the ambush went down, it, it was tough. So... No, I don't think I know I couldn't have done anything better than that Marine did. So you effectively transitioned to civilian life, an abrupt transition. You always wanted to be a Marine. You would you have possibly stayed in for life or I had a lot of goals. I wanted to turn around and be that drill instructor. That was a huge goal of mine. Um, I wanted to do some other things in the infantry stuff, at least try, you know, sniper blitz. I wanted to try some other things. Um, I can't say, I don't think it'd be a smart thing to say I, I was a lifer because that's tough to do in the grunts, you know, 20 years of that, but it happens all the time. There are Marines and Navy and army that do it all the time. So it can be done. I don't know. I, I just don't know. But that's the thing that I think I struggled with the most was that it was so cut short. I had no plans like, right? Like I, after high school, I had a plan. I'm going to the Marine Corps and then what are you going to do after that? Don't ask me that question because I don't know, man. This is this is a big enough choice to make in and of itself. Um, so now I have no clue what to do. No clue what to do. Everything I've just worked so hard for, these this bond that I've just made, these awesome people that would actually give their life for me and I would do it for them, they're gone. They're busy. Some of them didn't make it. And I'm by myself surrounded by people who have no clue. No clue what I am or what I've done or where I'm going now. And you just take a shot and forget about it, you know, which is not a good idea. So that civilian life you just kind of been thrown back into, 
you don't have a plan that that had to been tough oh it was the worst it was the worst thing yeah i was i was able to be there for my mom that part was great my mom did nothing but she raised me by herself me and my sister that part was great being able to help her was was awesome don't get me wrong but yeah my my plan was completely shifted i went i made a left hand turn and was not supposed to it, it, it wasn't planned is what i mean so yeah it was it was really it was really hard to deal with it probably took you some time to get over that yeah. and and to readjust since it was so abrupt uh, a lot of times the military had a plan to transition all the soldiers to the civilians that didn't even come into play since it was so abrupt. No, no, they have uh, it's called temps and taps. It might be something different now, but it's a couple of weeks of paying bills and at the time uh, uh, managing a checkbook and and stuff like that. You know, so they they have things that I know they're better at it now. But uh, no, I didn't even do any of that when I made my decision that I wanted to get out. If because I did ask when I was up at the airport, I'm like, how about this? Can I ride over there with you guys and then just catch a ride? I'll go hook up with Echo Platoon and or Echo Company. We'll be good. Like that's not the way this goes. You know, you're with us, and then after you reenlist, you could go back to the grunts. And I'm like, and then start all over again. So um, once that option was kind of taken away, I I didn't know what to do. No idea. Well, you know. You- your exit is was unplanned, and uh, a lot of we've heard a lot from from veterans that uh, even as far back as twenty years ago, even longer, that the government, the VA, didn't know how to deal with PTSD or didn't understand it fully or the effects of it. And uh, maybe the people that uh, still need help today aren't getting the help that they need uh, in different fashions that it comes across in their world. <clears throat> Have you seen any change uh, in in that in the in the present? Um, do you do you feel like the uh, the VA is getting better at helping with PTSD, or do you feel like you're able to ask for help and uh, and be able to get the help you need versus getting medicated, things like that? I would like to hope so. I really would. Um, you're right. Twenty years ago. I, do, I know that this wasn't the VA's stance, right? So I'm not speaking for them, and, or clearly am I a medical professional. It seemed for myself and a lot of guys that medication was easy to come by. So what I thought about that was if we medicate these psychos, they'll at least be calm, right? Well, the issue that I had personally with that, and I can only speak for myself, was that since a lot of my civilian friends and family didn't know what I was going through, it was this celebration, right? So now I'm medicated and everybody wants to buy me a drink. And so that is just a terrible idea because one should not go with the other in any way, shape or form. So I did a lot of therapy, but at the time I believe that medication was the key. I, I like I needed this, that, or whatever. You know, I, I thought that that was the right thing. So um, it was so easy to get. As a matter of fact, they would mail it to you. So when you're getting like you know psychoactive drugs and painkillers and stuff in the mail, and you're, I mean, you have to show up like once a month to see these doctors. So it it, it didn't work well for me. Now there are plenty of men and women who do what they're supposed to do and aren't at the bar and stuff. But I just wasn't one of them. Unfortunately, I, I, I wanted to forget. So to me, it was an easy way to forget everything. I, um, about halfway, 10, 11 years or something switched from the VA to civilian psychology and psychiatry, um, got off all the medication and stuff. And I found his name's Dr. Shapiro. He's here in St. Louis and he, him, my wife, I have the, I had this group of people that are the reason why I'm still here. Um, and I think, I think the thing for me that made the most sense was I didn't feel shuffled through this line. I didn't feel like, all right, next, you know, it, I just, I felt a different connection with the civilian doctor. So, um, that made it a lot easier for me to kind of open up because it seemed in my, um, in my story, 
I would start, and everybody wants to do the Freudian thing, right, where they start at childhood. Well, how was your upbringing? Well, then, so I tell you all this stuff and kind of let you in. Two weeks from now, when I show back up, it's not you, it's someone else. So now i got to start over. So I don't know how many doctors there were that I'm going back to my childhood. I'm like, I don't want to fucking talk about this anymore. You know, let's move on to, what do I do now? And so I, I did not, I don't, maybe I didn't follow the program. I'm sure I could have done better, but um, I think that they've tried very hard to do better with the men and women coming home with the PTSD thing. I sure hope so. We, uh, we've learned in our experience here at the museum that for many of our veterans that come home, that's when the battle really starts. And um, I'd ask you, what do you wish people knew about our Afghanistan and our Iraq veterans, um, because we don't feel like the public really understands what you guys go through coming home from the combat. Yeah, but should they or can they? You know, you got to ask yourself that question. Like, if they didn't volunteer to do that job, how would they know, right? So there's that thing in me now that I'm 40 and it's been 20 years that I've I've come to learn and and adjust to that. It's tough. I I don't know what an airplane pilot goes through, right? Because I'm not an airplane. So you have to give civilians, I think, you have to give civilians a little bit of leeway. Also, a lot, we're all just people. And sometimes, as tough as you might be, Mr. Tattooed Marine Guy or whatever it is, not quite that tough on the inside, you know? So, um, my wife has been great about learning about me and knowing about these things. She's done more research than I have, which I don't, it's probably not a good idea. My, I should know this stuff before her, but she needed to figure out how to talk to me and, and like what made me tick and what, what was good and bad. So, um, I think if there's just a little more conversation, I think it would help a lot, but as veterans, you, you got to take it easy on civilians too, because they're basically pogues. They're back here doing a job and living a life and raising kids and having, they're not doing anything wrong. It's just that of course they don't understand what it's like to be 20 years old and almost die a few times. You know, most people don't. So you kind of got to give them a little bit of leeway, but, um, gosh, what did I, what do I think they would? Yeah. The, a lot of hurt people, you know, and, and just talk to them and let them know, like, you're doing okay, you know. I, I think uh, some verbal reinforcement can help a lot. Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, your story with us, Dominic. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know about your experience or about your uh, struggle, anything like that, before we sign off? Surround yourself with positive people try to surround yourself with the most positive people you can find, whether they're, uh, you know, if you're a faith driven person or professional people that do well for themselves. I found that the social media stuff, I've been off of that for a long time because it was so negative all the time. And everybody we're in this place now where negativity kind of fuels us. And I've, I've dwindled down my group of people that I associate with in a, on a personal level to positive people who, you know, want to eat right and be in shape and, and, and professionally have done well for themselves. And, um, you know, if, if you can't find help in one place, let's just use the VA, which I know there's good people there, but if you can't find it there, like that's not the end of it. Don't, don't kind of give up there. Keep searching for it, you know, eat right. Try to exercise, do things and to keep your mind moving. Go to therapy, talk to someone. You know, it's not weakness and all that other stuff. I think it gets a big, uh, it gets a bad rap to go to see someone to talk about it. But we've all have way too many, we all have way too many friends that went down the suicide route or overdose or whatever. And uh, it doesn't have to be that way. You can you can you can do that job and still be productive and a good husband and father and friend to people and help people be nice to try to be nice to people and just because they don't understand or 
tell you thank you for your service doesn't make them a motherfucker. You know, they they just don't get it, and you don't get their life either. So you kind of got to take it easy on people and just try to help people and be nice, you know, and stay out of the bar and off of the drugs and, you know, do some push-ups when shit gets hard. You know, that's what we had to do when we were in. Why all of a sudden did we forget that? You know, work hard and keep your brain busy. And, and I think it'll, I think it'll help people a lot. Well, it's been our pleasure to have you in studio, Dominic. We're going to go ahead and sign off from the dog tag podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The dog tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesry at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her.